tales of horror. As the sleepless hours tick past, brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Season 15, Episode 21 of the No Sleep Podcast. I'm David Cummings, and now it's dark. I was curious about something the other day, so I took a look and confirmed that we now have 581 episodes available on our feed. That's almost 600 episodes, which probably average around one hour each. That's almost 25 straight days worth of audio horror fiction. And in four months, we'll be celebrating our 10th anniversary. (laughs) That's quite the ride. So why not take the time to share the No Sleep Podcast with a friend? Spread the word. Send five stars our way via whichever podcast app you use. Write a positive review. And follow our social media sites. We're at No Sleep Podcast on most social media outlets. All of those things help others discover the chills and thrills that we love creating for you each week. And so, let's kick off episode 581. And as always, let's begin our journey down this lost highway. In our first tale, we take the plunge into deep waters. A professional diver has the grim task of recovering bodies after a boat went down. But as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author S.M. Vincent, the diver is used to this sort of thing. That is, until he sees something down there he didn't expect to find. Performing this tale is Peter Lewis. So let's listen to what this diver experienced when he tells us what I saw beneath the sea. The bodies looked as they always did. It had been many years since the sight of one frightened me. The Korean War had many horrors and corpses. The shipwreck lay before me not even a mile from the coast. One of its crew stared at me from a port side window, his eyes dull, skin bloated and white, suspended in the water within the cabin for days. I made my way to the small fishing boat, my weighted feet moving sluggishly along the seafloor. The boat had struck some rocks during a recent storm. While some of the passengers escaped, others had been taken by the sea. I was sent down to assess the damage so retrieval could begin. The world was different down here. The rocky bottom with its swaying seaweed turning into a hazy distortion of shapes after maybe 30 feet in front of me. 
All I could hear was the tin noise of air bubbles escaping my helmet as fresh oxygen was pumped in from the boat above. My sense of touch went no further than the suit which protected me. The world outside was slow and silent. I placed my hand against the hull, running my palm along the ruined wood exterior. The boat had been dragged by the current over some rocks. The damage was jagged. The innards of the boat had spilled out of the wound and were gently moving with the tide along the seafloor. Peering inside the hole, I cast my light and saw books and papers floating in the water. Canned goods lay on the floor alongside an overturned pantry shelf. Particles danced in the cone of light as I scanned the room. There he was, in the corner, the other crewmate. He was turned away from me, suspended between the floor and the ceiling. Small fish had already begun to claim him. I cut through the darkness inside with my light one more time and told the surface where to find the bodies. There would be no open casket funerals for these men. I glanced back behind me and saw the void. The world over my shoulder simply faded into a blue nothing. I was finished and signaled to the boat to prepare to bring me up. Turning back to the wreck, I saw that directly above me a cluster of flora danced in front of the beams of light from the sun above. Strange, local plant life shouldn't have started to overtake the boat so soon. I looked closer at the swaying silhouette. Wait. No, it wasn't plant life. It was hair. A startled gasp escaped my throat as I raised my lantern and saw a new body peering down at me. It was a woman, and only her hands and face were visible over the side. The corpse was positioned in a pose of almost macabre curiosity, peeking down at me from the deck. None of the survivors had mentioned a woman on board, but why would they? They were all married men. If it got out that they had a woman on board, well, it wouldn't take much imagination to predict what would happen to them once they returned to shore. I made a note of it, but couldn't take my eyes off the motionless face staring down at me. I took one step backward, and then another. There's two more steps. The brass helmet hissed as air was pumped into it. I pulled myself away from its gaze and faced the void. So many bodies, so much violence has been committed in front of me. It had been many years since I felt shock at the sight of death. What an odd way to die. Even in death, she kept her grip on the railing. It wasn't the strangest way I had seen death take shape, but it was certainly up there with the most memorable. Still, I turned back toward the ship and my feet planted themselves to the sea floor. The woman was no longer gripping the rail. She was standing. The murky waters had started to take away the details of the ship, but the silhouette was still visible. Her hair flowed and moved with a life of its own, and her slim figure and dancing dress held a strange beauty. We both stood still in a silent eternity. I tried to move towards my extraction point, but was beholden to the sight in front of me. 
A sense of tension had seized my joints. The surface was asking what was wrong. No words would come. With a sense of grace, she stepped onto the railing and then over. The motion broke her spell and a sound of panic filled my helmet. I turned toward the void once more and pushed forward as quickly as the sea would let me. I told them to prepare for my extraction and the panic in my voice was evident. They asked what was wrong, but I had no words to give them. This... this was impossible. Corpses never move. My feet moved as though the sea itself was against me, the point directly beneath the boat seeming so far away. My mind raced with ideas of what lay behind me, of the woman touching down on the sea floor and racing towards the brown-suited man with his strange breathing apparatus. I could die down here in this alien environment. I reached the extraction point. Bring me up, bring me up. They started to pull up the tether and hose, but there was so much slack to go through first. The urge to turn around pushed its way into my mind. My breathing was quick, adrenaline coursing through my body. I turned. This, this was impossible. The ship was a murky shape in the ocean fog, and at the edge of it, coming into clear view, was the woman. She walked across the sea floor as slow as I had been, but with no struggle. No, this was her world, and I was a visitor in it. She reached out with both hands as if to welcome me to it, and a smile spread across her face. My adrenaline turned again to fear, heart-pounding, mind-killing fear. A scream escaped my lips. I... I was going to die down here. My atmospheric suit would be my coffin. Death approached me with open arms. Twenty feet. Fifteen. I had escaped death and seen its face for so many years, and it had finally come to take me. My cries of terror echoed inside the brass helmet. Tears spilled down my face. Her face was thin and gray, one eye a piercing blue. The other eye was a hollow, a dark socket. She was on me. I could almost feel her fingertips touching the suit. The slack... The slack had become taut and I began to rise toward the ship. The smiling face of death fell away as I started my ascent. Within moments, something touched my boot, a pressure clamping down on it, a hand. With a primal wailing, I struggled and shook my leg, a tension growing between the harness and the woman as they fought to see who would claim me. Blind, unadulterated fear escaped my lips in shrieks that tore at my throat. I was caught between life on the surface and death on the ocean floor. I cried as I fought to escape her grip. When it suddenly vanished, the boat pulled me free and I ascended towards the light of the surface, cries of terror still filling the suit. They unscrewed me from the suit in a hysterical fit, and I was deemed unfit for duty. 
I quit soon after and found a job on the mainland. So many decades have passed since that moment. I never found a rational explanation for what I saw. Wars would come and go. Worldly terrors filled the headlines and nightly news, but none of it frightened me. I realize now that the greatest fears are those we cannot find answers to. There are worse horrors than those that man can make. On some nights, I'd... I'd find myself dreaming of the ocean floor. That beautiful, awful face gazing at me with arms outstretched. I never went in the water again. If you talk with security guards, a lot of them will tell you that their job can be dull. And that's usually a good thing. Dull means safe and hassle-free. But in this tale from author J.D. McGregor, we meet security guard Ted as he patrols the local family funland. But when he spots a man with a rifle in the park, he knows it's going to be anything but dull from now on. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson and Graham Rowett. So be thankful there are people like Ted around when there's a sniper in the stands. The scalding sun beat down upon the crowds. Peak season had been reached and people were headed to family funland in droves. My skin was red and moist. I dripped the last of my water down my throat. I was sweating so much under my security uniform that its colors started to permanently change. I never thought that standing in one spot all day would prove so difficult. The only refuge on a day like that was to hide under the narrow shadows of the Ferris wheel. Its constantly circulating beams provided the most protection available while we waited for the occasional refreshing gust of wind to come off the ocean. Family Funland was a small theme park built around an old pier on the coast. It wasn't anything special. A collection of carnival-style rides, games, and kiosks permanently stationed along the sea. I think it benefited more from lack of competition rather than its own entertainment merit. I'd been working there since the spring, and had nestled myself into a position on permanent front-end security. The job's sole purpose was waiting behind the ticket booth and making sure that no one tried to sneak in or push past the gates without paying. What it really consisted of was a lot of standing, staring, and praying for the shift to end. My lower back would always start to ache in the last hour or so leave me wondering if I could last past my 30th birthday at the end of the summer. The task wasn't impossible. 
My partner on the job was an old security veteran well into his 60s, with greased back, thinning gray hair. Everyone called him Smokey. I'm not sure why exactly this was, but I never cared enough to ask him his real name. As far as I could see, Smokey wasn't friendly with anyone else on staff. He didn't talk much, nor was he ever a whole lot of fun to be around. For whatever reason, the guy seemed pretty hell-bent on sticking things out on the job well past the normal age of retirement. I think they put him on front-end security to limit his interaction with both staff and guests alike. Maybe they stuck me there along with him as some kind of hazing ritual for the new guy. That summer day was as boring as any other. Both of us leaned against the guardrail, not doing anything particularly useful. Smokey scribbled away on one of his many crossword puzzles, where he'd fill in a word or two, fold it into his back pocket, and survey the crowd for a good five minutes before attacking the next. I'd become somewhat of a professional people watcher in my time posted under the Ferris wheel. Now I found it the best way to pass the time. I'd like to take note of the many different types of people coming through. I'd profile them and try to picture what they were really like in their personal lives. Sometimes I'd make up little backstories with full histories that led them all the way up to the moment where they visited Family Funland. I'm not sure who picked up on it first, but there was a quick shift in energy between us. Something that had never happened on the job before. Smokey clumsily stuffed the crossword book in his back pocket and let the pen fall by his feet. The disturbance wasn't coming from the line to enter the gate in front of us. Rather, it was in the mix of people already inside the park and on the main corridor to our right. Among all the sounds of different people talking and yelling, there were separate and distinct sounds of distress that stood out from the mass. My eyes darted around all the different faces, trying to pinpoint exactly what it was and where it was coming from. I finally found it, dead center in the constantly shifting crowd. A bald man, maybe 45, pushed two kids in front of him, one boy and one girl. He gripped their shoulders and led them through the hordes of oncoming people and towards the exit gate. The kids winced and tried to drag their feet to slow him down. It was clear the children were not on board with whatever that bald man had in mind. Maybe it was just time to leave, or standard parental punishment for bad behavior. It was subtle enough that the three of them didn't stick out from the crowd or grab the attention of anyone, save for the two very observant front-end security guards. Disputes happened every day at Family Funland. Technically, there was no legitimate cause for concern, yet something scratched a nervous itch in my throat about that man. I couldn't help but feel there was something more sinister than what met the eye. I turned to Smokey and grabbed his shoulder. You seeing this? Smokey didn't acknowledge me. I noticed that his gaze had shifted above the crowd and away from the man pushing the kids. He was looking into the bleachers of the outdoor auditorium at the halfway point of the main corridor. Acrobatic shows and circus acts were held there periodically throughout the day. Smokey didn't blink. Clearly something up there had caught his attention. It was just past noon. The next act wouldn't be on until 1.30. The stand should have been empty and already cleaned at that point in the day. I shouldn't have been able to see what I eventually spotted there. 
A man stood alone in the row second to the top. He wore a long trench coat and a black cap. He should have never been able to get past security and go up there. A long case rested on the seat next to him. He surveyed the crowd, paused on us for a few seconds, as if he knew we were watching him, then turned his attention to the case. He flipped the top open and pulled something out. It was... a rifle. The shape was indisputable. There was no questioning what it was, not even from a distance. It was long and narrow at the top, with a tiny scope resting atop the base. The man swiftly brought the gun up to his shoulder and pivoted his body so he looked over the crowd again. He leaned forward and pressed his eye against the scope. It had all happened so fast. Smokey had already dashed towards the auditorium and was pushing his way through the crowd of people before I could even react. I screamed into my radio. Code Red! Code Red! Hostile in the auditorium! That was our maximum emergency signal. Something I never expected to hear, let alone use myself while on the job. The guys in the administration office would call 911 the moment they heard it. All security staff on hand were meant to head towards the auditorium. It took me a few seconds to go, but armed with only a small baton, I ran full tilt towards that auditorium. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do when I got there. I weaved through the crowd, screaming for everyone to get out of the way. I ran into people and knocked them over, not stopping, not caring. People stepped out of the way, hushed and terrified from seeing a security guard in such distress. I heaved in big gasps of air when I finally staggered up the entrance to the auditorium. A few members of the security team had reached the area first and were looking around bewildered. They huddled around me when I reached them, asking what exactly I'd seen and where I'd seen it. I was too out of breath to talk, so I pointed up to the top row of the stands. I may as well have pointed at the sky, because nothing was there except for empty seats. The man, along with his rifle and his case, were gone. There was no way out except for the way we'd all come in. It would have been impossible for him to get there before we did. I had to explain myself and what I thought I saw to everyone on the security staff, and then to my manager later on. I spat out the same bullshit-sounding story on my own, asking for Smokey to come and back me up. Though that didn't happen because Smokey never made it to the auditorium. He wasn't even in the park after all the commotion had calmed. The old coward had gone home. I didn't even have 24 hours rest to try and get over the embarrassment before my next shift. I still hadn't decided if what I thought I'd seen was actually real or some kind of mirage. Something must have been there or else Smokey wouldn't have taken off. I'd played my confrontational conversation with him over in my head in the shower before work and had myself convinced it was going to play out the way I had it planned. Smokey's shift started an hour before mine. It was another hot summer day and he was no other place than leaning against the rail in front of the ferris wheel, reading over what I thought was another one of his stupid crossword puzzles. I knocked it out of his hands. The fuck is your problem? Where the hell did you go the other day? He looked up at me like he had no idea what I was talking about. 
You saw that man up there. I know you did. How could you run away like that? Didn't run home, Ted. His voice was casual, like he thought I was making a big deal out of nothing. Well, you sure as hell weren't in the auditorium when push came to shove. Everyone was there but you. Quite frankly, you're the one with the least to lose. I thought that last remark had probably taken it too far. But still, his facial expression didn't change. He remained looking disinterested. How did it make you feel when he wasn't there? The other guys push you around a little? What do you mean? When you showed up and the old sniper man wasn't there waiting for you in the stands. How did it make you feel? Like an idiot. Felt the same way the first time I charged after him, too. Felt just the same way every other damn time I went chasing after him after that. I squinted at him, seeing if I could get him to tip me off on whatever bullshit he was spewing. His face stayed cold. He ushered me toward him with his fingers. Look. He handed me what I originally thought was a crossword, but discovered was actually that day's paper. In big bold letters across the top read the headline, Local Father Abducts and Murders Children. I tried to read about how the man had taken the children from his ex-wife's home on hours he wasn't allowed to see them, and brought them out for a day of fun before ultimately driving to the boonies and shooting them, and then himself inside the car. My eyes couldn't help but be drawn to the picture of the smiling man they'd used for the front cover story. That bald head, those skinny, almost impoverished-looking facial features. Unmistakably, the man I'd seen pushing the children before my attention was diverted to the sniper in the stands. Familiar face? Yeah. How did you... The second I saw that man with those kids, I knew the sniper would show up. The hell are you talking about? Been working here for 36 years, Teddy boy. That ghost has been here off and on for all that time. And I imagine well before my time as well. Smokey. Not expecting you to believe me. But I ain't gonna waste both of our time trying to get you to. Tried that before, not worth the effort. Who was that man up there with the rifle? Wasn't a man, Ted. It was nothing more than a warning. A warning of what? That something terrible's gonna happen. If you're smart and you plan on sticking around here, you'll pay close attention from here on out. You see that sniper, you look around for where the threat really is. Snowball's chance in hell you'll be able to stop it. But maybe if you can find the right people at the right time, you can prevent something real bad from happening. Where did you go when all of us ran to the auditorium? Tried to go after Baldy with those two kids. What happened? Lost him in the crowd. Couldn't find him in the parking lot. Couldn't find him while driving all around the area for the next few hours. I turned to the crowds of people coming through the gate we were supposed to be monitoring. Never been able to stop it in all the years I've been here. Only reason I'm still here is to try and make a difference. Even if it's just once. You see that sniper, you bet your ass something bad is happening. The next few shifts passed with no major disturbance. We didn't speak of the sniper again after that discussion, but I found myself spending the dragging hours on the job toying with Smokey's words inside my mind. 
It was about convincing myself that what I was so sure I'd seen wasn't real, and what Smokey said wasn't true. I wanted to believe that he was simply a senile old man with nothing better to do with his time than tell tall tales of a sniper I'd seen such vivid proof of up in the bleachers. There was no denying the scare had heightened my focus and increased my people watching ten times over. Vigilant all the time, my eyes darted from face to face within the oncoming crowds, always watching for that little sign of something out of place. That one person or situation going unnoticed in all the festivity of the park. Time progressed far enough for me to lose the edge and start to feel that everything was under control. Forget the fact that I could only see people entering and leaving, along with the others walking the main corridor. They were only a small fraction of the park attendees. There were many nooks and crannies on the premises completely out of sight and out of mind from where I was posted. I thought I was going to be ready the day the sniper made his eventual return. That time, it was me, not Smokey, who had noticed him first. I saw him look up from his crossword puzzle out of the corner of my eye and follow my gaze over the crowd. There was no disturbance among any of the patrons to catch my attention first. That time, the sniper had presented himself unprompted. He stood alone on the little pier that jutted out from the main boardwalk. It was built between two of the food kiosks and was nothing more than a short walk out to a dead end. The view overlooking the ocean was nice, but nothing any different than you would see strolling casually down the boardwalk and looking over the water from there. It wasn't a part of the park that people were particularly attracted to. The sniper leaned back against the railing with a gentle ocean breeze running through the flaps of his coat. The long case was at his feet. Once again, he stared out over the crowd towards us, as if he was distinctly aware of our presence. Like he knew that we knew he was there. Smokey and I exchanged a glance and both took off. Being his junior by 30 or so years, I sped way ahead of him. I darted through the families and couples holding hands, trying not to knock anyone over, trying not to take my eyes off the sniper. Right before I was about to break out of the crowd, the sniper became blocked by a woman's head in passing. It was only for a fraction of a second, but it was all he needed to disappear. It was like he'd used the opportunity to splice himself out of reality and leave nothing but an empty space at the end of the dock. I looked over the railing in the spot where he stood only seconds before, praying I'd see him swimming away or trying to hide under the splintered wooden supports. Nothing was there, only the gentle tide and a little white foam atop the surface. Smokey emerged from the crowd behind me. He staggered while he held his chest and looked up at the sky. He almost made it to me before dropping to his knees. I reached out a hand to help him up and pushed it away. The old man hadn't collapsed out of exhaustion, but rather despair. His eyes glossed over and he dropped his head to try and hide them from me. We'll never catch him. Smokey, I... needs to end. I'd never heard him talk that way before. His voice cracked like a boy hitting puberty. 
I heard a gentle splash and some bumping from the ocean below us. I turned and checked in the same spot in the water where I'd just been looking for the sniper. The young boy's body was face down and floating. The skin on the back of his neck was red and blistered like it had been out in the sun for days. The drowned child washed up against the supports and slipped back when the waves receded. Later that night, I would sit and watch the evening's news over dinner and see the story of the same boy who disappeared while swimming off his parents' dock a little further up the coast the day before. He looked so much happier and full of life in all the pictures they were showing. Smokey and I were both given extended leaves of absence after that day. Our security manager essentially told us that it was mandatory that we took a few weeks off to recoup and had already begun scheduling other guys on our shifts. The idea was good, in principle. It would have worked had I actually used the time to try and process what exactly I'd seen both times I'd run after that elusive sniper. The truth was that my time off was spent mostly lying flat on my bed, ordering pizza, and staring at the ceiling fan. Boredom and paranoia don't mix well. Although I was scared putting the uniform on for my first shift back at work after three weeks, I was happy to have moved on from that short and painful phase in my life. Before I could clock in to start, my manager called me into his office and told me that Smokey had tendered his resignation and wouldn't be coming back to work. It appeared that the incident on the dock had been the final straw. The old man had been broken, and his long overdue retirement had begun. His departure left me with an increased sense of duty. His replacement was a pimply-faced teenager still in high school who I elected not to share my sniper stories with. Being the sole protector of family funland felt like a duty I could handle, though in reality, I knew there was very little I could do when the time came. It was another couple of weeks before the sniper made an appearance again. Like before, the time in between was so mundane and uneventful, it almost started to feel like he was gone and all of us were safe once more. He'd originally caught my eye by accident. The lines of people outside the gate had morphed into the same boring personalities they always did, so I'd lost focus and looked over them. Right above the welcome sign, something piqued my attention in a spot where things rarely changed. It was on the row of buildings on the other side of the street beyond the parking lot. Most of them were the old-style downtown buildings with individual storefronts on the main floor and apartments built on top. None of them were higher than the three stories on the entire block. Some of them had little makeshift terraces with gardens and barbecues on the roof. It was on one of those rooftops where I noticed him. People were typically out there on cooler days or in the evenings when it was actually pleasant enough to lounge outside. Yet, on one of the middle buildings on such a hot day, there was a small black figure standing on the nearest edge and looking over the park. Perhaps if someone less meticulous had been looking, they wouldn't even have noticed. There was no doubt in my mind about who that figure was. 
just as I'm sure there was no doubt he was looking back at me as well. Like the first time I had seen him, I didn't know exactly what my plan was when I left my post to head in his direction. Still armed with only our mandatory baton, I left the teenager to man our useless position, cut through the crowds, and headed for the exit gate. I jogged through the parking lot, keeping my eyes on the figure until I hit the road. I crossed during a break in cars and went down the alley alongside the buildings to the fire escape. The metal pieces groaned beneath me while I climbed. I was shocked to see the sniper still standing at the edge of the terrace when I reached the top. It was the closest I'd ever seen him. His attention wasn't on me. He still looked over the crowd. I loosened the baton from my belt and tiptoed behind him. Little pebbles scratched beneath my feet while I approached, surely loud enough for him to hear. He did not turn until I was almost right behind him. His skin was old and weathered, just like Smokey's. He looked like any old man you would see on the street. No striking detail to make me think he was anything else. He didn't pose a threat, nor suggest he fretted over me harming him. From inside his trench coat, he pulled out a piece of paper. He held it out to me, the wind ripping it back and forth between his fingers. I knew the author. It was those same block letters I'd seen Smokey fill out on all those crossword puzzles while we stood around under the ferris wheel for all those wasted hours. Sniper will never leave. Only way to make him go is for us to go. Finally, my chance to make a difference. I looked up from the paper to see that the sniper had once again vanished without me even noticing. I stepped forward and looked over the crowd, just as he'd been doing before I got there. Something peculiar was taking place on the main corridor. Something I'd never seen before. The space in the crowd grew halfway down off the path. It was right in the busiest part where people crisscrossed heading to different parts of the park. Smokey stood as the lone figure in the middle. I could tell it was him just from his posture, even from the distance where I was. He wore a long trench coat, one not so different than the sniper's. People's screams pierced into the air while they dashed away. The space around him stretched away in all directions. Smokey opened his coat and flapped the sides behind him. Long black cylinders lined a belt around his waist. A thin wire ran down from his back to a little detonator he held. I could have sworn that before he pressed it, he looked up and was aware of my presence in his final moments. The main corridor became engulfed in a cloud of gray and orange. Smokey and 236 Family Funland patrons ceased to exist in one of the greatest acts of terror in human history. The sniper had fairly warned us once again.
Have you ever worked for an awful boss? Most of us have at some point. The demands, the unfair pressure, the constant risk of being fired. Well, Nora can relate. And as we learn about Nora in this tale by author Vanessa McClellan, she shakes off the pressure of the day by taking walks at night. And you know what they say, the freaks come out at night. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Sarah Thomas, Mike Delgadio, Graham Rowett, Atticus Jackson, Aaron Lillis, Wafia White, Jessica McAvoy, Kyle Akers, Jeff Clement, and Mick Wingert. So before you go to HR, consider this tale about the 25 days of Nora Nightwalker. One, Monday, day. Funding for the Stratford project has been halved due to new retirement regulations. Not that I want to alarm you, but... Nora Shoemaker doodled stars and flowers. Over the double-columned list of important meeting points, her CEO, Calvin Nelson, had handed out two hours ago. Money exists for another FTE. However, the integrity of the agency comes first. Here come the firing threats again. She chiseled out a cabin from her ink scribbles, then a giraffe. Around her, the 16 employees of Marchfeld Marketing stared on in glazed docility as Calvin prattled on. Monday, like every Monday for the past 12 years. Night, the teenage boy drifted left on Burton, then right onto Mill Road. Nora Nightwalker, clad in black, had tracked him for twenty minutes. His bedhead and pajama pants plastered with sponge bob had lured her in as he perused the science fiction section at the Sisters Plaza Barnes and Noble. He left the store empty-handed. Nora followed. She excelled at trailing people on her night walks. She clutched her bag to her side. It was a reassuring wait full of her night tools. The kid, wool-gathering, didn't notice the black van pull alongside him. The door slid open. Arms snatched him up. Nora watched, stunned. Another night walker? Two. Tuesday. Day. Morning, Nora. Morning, Walter. The secretary... Walter Campton had an inoperable brain tumor. Not a death sentence, the doctor said, that made him smell non-existent things. Burnt toast. Wet dog. Cocking. Oddly, Walter never noticed the cloud of cherry sucrets he produced. A kidnapping. She reported it to the police. Her old therapist would have been pleased. Nora removed the paper pile from her inbox. Monthly compilation sheets. Marchfeld's newsletter. A red-inked proposal she turned in last week. Hadn't Calvin accepted that? The client was going to be seething. Scrawled on the bottom of the first page. See me. She flung it on her desk.
night. Sipping a Cosmo at the Olive Garden's discreet bar, Nora watched Calvin Nelson, surrounded by his wife and four kids, reflected in the bar's back mirror. Four kids. Who had four kids? The agency touted green measures, but the CEO was a baby factory. A world of do as I say. Calvin, take Brian a moment. Calvin's thin wife pushed a squirmy toddler at her husband. Nora had never met her, but she exuded the disposition of a harried terrier. Betty, not now. Calvin flicked his finger over the face of his phone. Gaming or texting or maybe red-inking Nora's latest report. Three. Wednesday. Day. Nora stalked up to Eduardo Acosta's cube and poked her head around the fabric wall panel. Eduardo was tapping at his computer. Dual screens full of documents and spreadsheets. She sized up his taskbar. Nothing inappropriate. No email. No music. Probably never slipped in a five-minute bout of solitaire. The man was a saint. One of those tabs was the database. The repository of all things vital. Nora clutched the paper slathered in red ink behind her back. I'm curious about your last proposal. I couldn't find it. Eduardo wielded his mouse, clicked and opened a document. Uh, Hilco file. Yeah, thanks. She checked the Hilco proposal. Same formatting. Same basis for her marketing strategy. Same standard wording. Same mistakes without the ink bleeding all over it. See me. Night. Nora left work late, finishing menial tasks to avoid meeting with Calvin. Eventually, she'd have to face him and force him to explain his seven levels of arbitrary judgments. Her skin crawled. She needed to relax, needed her night walk, to use her tools. A couple stumbled out of High Call Tavern. The guy's hands groped up the woman's shirt, grasping. His mouth swallowed her face. The pair tottered by an alley. Nora followed, steps silent. Something shifted in the recess of the side street, dark shadow on shadow catching Nora's attention. A man or a woman. The body held a neutral androgyny, dressed in black, turning to run. Her eyes widened, breath caught in her throat. The head had no face. Four. Thursday. Day. Nora, Aaron, You need to attend the 10 a.m. webinar. Calvin handed them a paper and left. Marketing strategies for the government sector. Aaron sighed. What did it matter? Nor had seen a real-life monster. Without a face. There were nearly a thousand lines to call in on. Nora spaced out through two hours of discussions about things she'd educated herself on through actual work. Any questions? Came the screen prompt. Aaron typed, 
How are these new strategies expected to enhance staff productivity? After the 15-minute Q&A portion passed without Aaron's question addressed, Nora suspected there was only one email line in, and the inbox was full. Night. One couple. A group of five. A bachelorette party. High Call Tavern surged with patrons. The alley hid no putty-faced people. Nora pulled a flashlight out of her bag, one of her tools, and searched the area. For what? A clue? What did she expect? A dossier? A disc of video footage? The thing... She couldn't help but think of it as non-human, waiting with tea and a handshake... A noise at the mouth of the alley interrupted her thoughts. Nora clicked off her light and melded into the dark. Another couple. Very amorous. Resigned, Nora waited while the couple screwed against the brick alley wall. Five. Friday. Day. Calvin, you wanted to talk to me about this proposal? Calvin turned away from his dual screens, both filled with the database. Yeah. Why didn't you attach the spreadsheet to it? She gritted her teeth. We're doing that now? Of course. His eyes narrowed. We've been attaching them? She swallowed down news to me and instead said, I'll go include it. Calvin's frown deepened. Let's check Christie's proposal. I checked with Eduardo, and he didn't put the spreadsheet in his proposal. Calvin turned back to his screens. Ah, well, that's Eduardo. I don't check his work. Night. Don't check Eduardo's reports? Nor had nearly lunged across the desk and strangled Calvin with his phone cord. Her co-workers had amnesty from her walks but not necessarily crimes of passion. Christy explained she'd been including the spreadsheets for months now, on a whim. Too bad nobody had told her, or Eduardo, or Erin, that spreadsheets were now the expectation. Too bad only Nora got scolded. Like a child, she wished her boss would get kidnapped, taken away in an unmarked van, It would be out of her hands then. Nora clutched her bag to her side and stalked an Asian man into the park. Six. Saturday. The sound of chirping birds woke Nora. None of that dreadful buzzer crap she had to deal with Monday through Friday. The sky outside held full-on day. She didn't look at the clock. Last night wore her out. But it had been nice. She stretched along her mattress, purring at the ache in her muscles. Finally, she climbed out of bed, jogged five miles, read the paper as she ate breakfast. Two fried eggs, over easy, which she called bloody. Her eyes scanned the police reports. After a wash, she turned to one of her favorite tasks. One by one, she removed her tools, cleaning them, sharpening them, making sure they were still in operable condition. 
A new rope wouldn't be amiss. She needed new clothes. Last night's outfit was ruined. Within the formless hours of her day, she hit them all. Black leggings. Black turtleneck. Black gloves. Each from a different store. Her shoes had survived. She bought a new pair anyway. She'd need them someday. That evening, she met her friend Cheryl for dinner and a movie at the cheap theater. Night of the Living Dead. Nora laughed through all the gory parts, imagining it was Calvin getting his face shredded off. Seven. Sunday. Sunday morning, Nora Shoemaker considered attending the local Methodist church. Maybe she'd go to the Baptist. She wasn't sure of her mood. Did she want singing? Fire and brimstone? Maybe the Catholic one, where she could take in the body of Christ. In the end, she just haunted her neighborhood park where the kids gathered to kick balls and mothers kvetched about their husbands. Nora thanked her single motherless state. Nobody forced their expectations on her. Well, except Calvin Nelson. While walking along the paved trail and circling the tame and manicured lake, Nora considered a job search. Marketing studies, spreadsheets, and mangy bosses would be the death of her. Unfortunately, she'd been in marketing so long, she had no other skills. But a different agency might not drive her to drink or take her night walks. After lunch, she called the police and asked about the kidnapped boy from Monday. He'd found his way home, they said. Oddly, though, the young man had no memory of his experience. Oh, and his parents were delighted. Said he's been on the best behavior since his return. The duty cop said. Well, guess being stolen could do that to a person. Eight. Monday. Day. She arrived early, but the CEO's silver Lexus had already claimed his parking spot nearest the office entrance. Nora unlocked the side door and dropped her bag off at her cluttered cubicle, popping her computer on so it could laboriously begin updating the database. Making her way to the office kitchen, she stumbled on Calvin perched on a stepladder, painting over water stains on the ceiling acoustic tiles with the whiteout. She stared up at him dumbly. Uh, good morning. Good morning, Nora. He added another coat of white to the stain using the tiny little brush. Night. Bag under arm... Nora Nightwalker stalked the clubbing district of the city. She poked her nose into every alley, every dark corner. She got hit on by five drunk men and one drunker woman. She was threatened by a large man with pants dragging past his ass. One homeless kid followed after her, yelling, Why don't you talk to me? In the end, she didn't find any faceless things. Beings. She did, however, see a black van pull up and drag a young woman wearing a short tiger print skirt inside. This time, Nora checked. It had no license plate. Nine. Tuesday. Day. 
I'd like you to look at the newest billing form. Calvin dispersed a series of papers. Nora and the rest of the staff stared at the form sitting benignly on the conference table before each of them. The lines requiring information from their clients had doubled since the last form. And along the top, where it had once read billing, it now read, Notice of Intent to Extract Payment. I think you'll all agree this is clearer than our previous form and in alignment with policy language and database format. Nora let her head fall forward and bang against the table. Night. Black van, no plates. How hard could one black van with no plates be to find in the city? Impressively hard. She bought a street map at the local gas station and plastered it to her bedroom wall. The kid had been kidnapped at Burton and Mill. She drew a circle around the spot in red marker. Then the van showed up again down the street from High Call Tavern. Another red circle. As the crow flew, that was only two miles apart. She had to talk to that kid. Find out what he remembered. Hopefully it was something. Anything. Ten. Wednesday. Day. Trapped in the back seat of an agency car on the way to a trade show, Nora listened as Calvin and Eduardo defamed a rival agency's personnel. Ugh. Terrence is an idiot. Can't believe he made manager. Eduardo laughed. <laughs> Nora hated when Eduardo acquiesced to Calvin's belligerence. He doesn't know jack about the newest regs. The regulations changed every month. Nora couldn't blame anyone for not being up to date with every nuance. Eduardo was, though. But Eduardo was superhuman. The idiots will rule the world someday. Calvin shook his head. Nora looked in the rearview mirror, catching the eyes of the biggest idiot of them all. Night. Between the aisles of Barnes and Noble, that kid paced. The one taken away, returned, and who now presented himself as a model citizen. No more bedhead. In fact, his hair lay flat, and his Henley was tucked into his jeans. Excuse me. The teenager jumped. His eyebrows shot up before he relaxed and smiled. Yeah? Were you the guy kidnapped a few days back? On Burton. The kid laughed, <laughs> then shook his head, uh. amused as all get out. Nah, someone called and reported I'd been taken. I was just screwing around with my friends. Eleven. Thursday. Day. It was one of those mornings where Nora didn't feel smart. She didn't feel pretty. And she didn't have the energy for a hearty good morning or a kiss my butt. Aaron walked into the office with a hefty sway, huffing in air. The cat piss stench of marijuana clung to her clothes. Morning, Walter. Nora, how was the trade show? Enlightening. You know how inspiring Calvin is. Aaron and Nora exchanged a look. Enlightening, yeah. Aaron passed by. Sweat dripped down her round face, round and pink like a peach. 
She sat with a groan. Walter looked around. Do you smell something? Night. Nora popped into the market for supplies. Bleach again? The Thursday checker asked. Nora smiled weakly. She couldn't stay still. Her skin itched. She eyed the liquor store as she cruised by. Back in the upper city, Nora stalked the streets and finally spotted a woman, mid-thirties. Unkempt and blubbery, but not Erin's size. Pushing a shopping cart full of obviously precious junk, the woman turned into a schoolyard. Nora followed, clutching her bag to her chest. Near the jungle gym, darkness spread out like oil. The overhead light must have blown. Nobody saw Nora as she took out her tools. Twelve. Friday. Day. A pile of reports filled her inbox. Nora flipped through them. Red ink. Red ink. Red ink. Somebody slayed an Inkasaurus and let it bleed all over the pages. Aaron came up, grabbed her pile. Eduardo had only one little page. A note about an upcoming webinar. Nora scanned her top report. The prices were varied and market statistics could not be assured by... Varied had been inked out and replaced with constantly in flux. The paper crumbled in Nora's fist. Back in her cube, she stared at her blank screens. In the cube next to her, Erin was crying. Night. By the river, near a drainage pipe big enough for a person to crawl through... Nora watched the transients enjoy a fire of construction debris and garbage. It wasn't cold out, but they seemed drawn to the flames like aboriginal tribesmen on the hunt. The shadows embraced her. Dressed in black, tucked behind some Oregon grape, she was nearly invisible unless someone caught the flash of firelight in her eyes. She waited for one to step away from the herd, but they kept together. Perhaps sensing danger. A hunter watching. Waiting. Then something, stretched thin and faceless, climbed from the pipe. Thirteen. Saturday. The faceless lurched down the beach, away from the bum's camp. Its movements ragged all wobbly. Nora crept out from her hidey hole and followed, keeping to the darker recesses. A buzz zipped through her entire body, like it did when she was on a walk. Was it an alien? A monster? A failed genetic government experiment out for a stroll? An owl who cracked the night's silence. The thing approached the riverside patio of a snazzy bistro that boasted excellent risotto. It ducked under the patio, and Nora Nightwalker sprinted forward, ditching her cover, yanking a mini flashlight from her pocket. Faceless's smooth head peeked from under a wooden beam and then ducked away again. Nora vaulted under the patio, brushing aside spiderwebs, but couldn't see the thing. The scent of piss twisted up her nose. The flashlight beam exposed a dead end of hillside dirt. 
A wooden lattice in perfect condition corralled two sides of the area. Faceless was pretty loose and wiggly. Maybe it slipped through a lattice grate. Maybe it oozed down a rat hole into the earth. Maybe it just... disappeared. It had seen her after all. Had seen her and taunted her. The thing was teasing her. Fourteen. Sunday. She woke past noon and praised Sundays. Hair wrapped in a terrycloth towel, she studied her black van map, hands on hips. She placed purple dots where she saw faceless. A dual-purpose map. One red circle and a purple dot huddled close together. She pursed her lips and pondered, then shook her head, musing. Could it be? After scarfing dinner, Nora donned her waterproof gear. Think PVC Carhartt work pants and jacket in green, knee-high rubber boots, heavy-duty plastic gloves. Back on the riverside, Nora sneaked down the beach past the crashed-out destitute. They didn't stir, no longer wary of stalking death. She stopped at the leaking drainage pipe. Nostrils scrunching in betrayal, Nora climbed into the black void and flicked her headlamp on. The tunnel teed and cornered like a mind-bending hamster habitat. Dark, dank, smelly, tight. Nora couldn't stand. The air was thick. At the edges of her hearing, she teased out a sound. A kind of squelching rustling. She tracked it. Armed with the beam of her headlamp, Nora edged into a chamber filled with a mass of shimmery black kidney-shaped worms. They writhed over each other. They sucked away all light. Nora shrieked. (coughs) Fifteen. Monday. Day. Hey, lady... You okay? Nora lay under the pipe opening, panting. Her body shook, a ragged, terrified palsy she couldn't control. The tunnels had twisted in mockery. She'd feared she'd be trapped there forever. Lady? She ignored the scruffy street kid, her mind still entombed underground. With the massive... She thought she'd gone mad... Not like faceless, but larval, living tar serpents. In her hand, clutched between the flayed rubber of her ruined glove, was a scrap of newspaper. Scratched in the corner with the dull nub of a pencil was a time. 11.45. And a web address. www.doppelganger.net Night. Work had been a robotic series of calls and letters. At home, sitting before her computer, Nora's leg bounced a frantic staccato. 11.44 p.m. Refresh. 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 11.45. Refresh. The ultimate service to create a carefree life. Doppelganger. 
for when you're tired of your husband's infidelity or your child's wild ways, or for those ready to pass on the duties of a challenging life. Doppelganger. We'll replace anyone for a price. P.O. Box 222. Please include name and location of individual to be replaced, and what you are offering in exchange. All offers considered. 1150. The site auto-refreshed. Nora stared at a blank page. Sixteen. Tuesday. Day. I see many of you have not adopted the new naming convention. Everything needs renaming. Date, year first, name of facility, then the manager... Nora's eyes glazed over at the three-page spread of naming possibilities, depending on file type. A letter got one name. A company profile got another. A spreadsheet for a proposal a third. But a spreadsheet for year-end calculations another... Christy seemed to share her frustrations. Calvin, wouldn't it be clearer if we tag the documents to search for them rather than rename? No, this will make it cleaner. Calvin's bald head reflected the harsh overhead lighting. Nora doodled a globular head without a face on the paper. Night. Nora roamed the street seeking out a faceless thing, a doppelganger. A kid strutted his way toward a 7-Eleven. Nora yearned to stalk him, but she'd left behind her bag of tools, and she needed to find the thing without a face. Hey there, do you have a light? Nora turned, eyes landing on a perfectly smooth, faceless head. How had it even spoken? Uh, no. Nora swallowed. I need to talk to you. The head shifted, shivered, like maggots writhing underneath a thin membrane of skin. Then the doppelganger sprinted down the street after the kid. Nora chased, fell behind. A black van zoomed after. Seventeen. Wednesday. Day. Walter, where's Calvin? I have a letter of estimate for him to sign. Don't know. Kids play, maybe. Walter sniffed the air. Nora ran off before he accused her of wearing paint-scented perfume. She laid the letter on Calvin's immaculately tidy desk. Something underneath drew her eye. She peeked. Astonishment momentarily stunned her. Stored boxes of canned food cluttered the leg space. Muscle milk... Instant noodles. Chocolate candy bars. Nora wondered if he was preparing for the end times, which took her mind to the doppelganger. She doubted hiding out in the office would save anyone from the replicators. Night. The map pinned to her wall made more sense. Now that she realized the red circles and purple dots paired up like chocolate and peanut butter... Pieces of a puzzle clicking together. One, two, three. One, two, three. The two kidnappings. The doppelganger sightings. The drainage pipe resting nearly at center point. 
Then there was that amused tone. Do you have a light? Do you have a light? It was toying with her. Toying with Nora Nightwalker. That just wouldn't do. Nora donned her garb. Black turtleneck, jeans, boots. Grabbed her bag of tools and walked into the night. This time with a completely different prey. Eighteen. Thursday. Day. Eyelids crusted shut. Nora wanted to call in sick. Maybe dead. She'd hunted the alleys and teenage hangouts all night without a whisper of faceless. Stocked parks. She'd drawn the line at the pipes under the city, though. Those writhing worms. That had freaked the bejesus out of her. Slipping into her cube, she heard Aaron sobbing. The smell of unwashed body and pot wafted into Nora's cube. Nora decided to flee the office, meet a recent client, but Eduardo caught her mid-escape. Emergency meeting. Another one? Eduardo frowned at her. She should have shot herself. That would have ended all of this. Freed her. Night. A middle-aged man, posh suit, cocky swagger. He would do. He would fulfill her need. Nora tracked him through the business district. When it came to her, a solution to all her problems. She didn't need a new job. Her current one could be easy if only under sane circumstances. Plus, she didn't need to hunt the doppelganger. She needed to hire its services. Abandoning her walk, ceasing her hunt, she drafted a letter to P.O. Box 222, drove to the far side of town, and dropped it in a blue mailbox. Her letter read, The CEO of Marchfeld Marketing. Let's negotiate. You know who I am. 19. Friday. Day. Nora's desk phone rang. The phone's display read, Calvin Nelson. She pondered how long it would take for him to become a decent human being. Hello. She didn't bother to force joy into her voice. I need you to print that email from the Boyer Group about their latest product. I'll just forward it to you. No, don't email it. You'll just create another e-record. That's against policy. Just print it off. Right, because then we'd have to rename it and file it, making sure it fit in the database. There was a pause, then... Right. He hung up. Night. Well past midnight, Nora leaned against a glowing street lamp, making herself visible to the doppelganger. A light rain drizzled. The passing car's headlights reflected against the asphalt. A couple walking hand in hand snagged her attention. In low voices, they chatted about a movie where a secret agent of the government saved the day in some daring and improbable way. The urge to follow hooked Nora, poised in her belly, ready to strike, like an orgasm. They strolled down the street, harboring no worries about who watched them, who could follow them to dark, quiet places. They faded into the night. Nora waited, 
20. Saturday. On her morning grocery trip, Nora spotted a black van turned down a residential street. She chased after in her car, cutting off a Toyota with a squeal of tires. She relaxed her grip on the wheel when she saw the plates 875WVM. It meant nothing. It was nothing. Just some van. Still, she tailed it. It parked outside a rundown ranch house. A man in his later half of life emerged, gray wisps of hair dancing in the light breeze. She needed a fix, some fix, any fix, because she felt ready to combust in a torrent of fire. Her old psychiatrist had said she needed to maintain some connection to humanity, or she might slip into antisocial behavior. Human connection had never fulfilled the need. Nora had ceased seeing the psychiatrist years ago. That evening, Nora Nightwalker paced along the riverside shops. Masses passed her on the promenade, laughing, arguing, silent. Groups of teens, couples, a family out late. Her tools were stashed in her trunk. Two days gone and nobody had contacted her. Nobody had snatched her boss. A cyclist zipped by. She considered stalking the two-wheeled. A new challenge. That's what she needed. Nothing but a new challenge. She went home and flipped on her computer. 11.45 p.m. www.doppelganger.net The ultimate service to create a carefree life. Nora Nightwalker, what is it you would pay? Her mouth went dry. She flipped off the computer. Twenty-one. Sunday. What would I pay? A year's salary? Two? Her job with a decent boss wouldn't be quite so onerous. She had savings enough if she lived frugally. She didn't buy expensive things. Just bleach and plastic gloves. A kidney? Did they deal in organs? Nora made coffee, cleaned her bathroom, did her laundry. She didn't want to think about what she would pay. Screw this. She knew exactly what she could pay, what she had to offer. Bag of tools in hand, Nora found herself at the drainage pipe by the river. Wrapped up in her plastic clothing, she climbed into the wide mouth, her LED headlamp lighting the way. It was cold and it was wet and it smelled horrible. Worse than Aaron's pot stink. Walter probably smelled odd things like this all the time. She squinted left down a wide pipe, then crawled the opposite direction. Left led to the maggot pit. Going right, she landed in the den of the faceless. Twenty-two. Monday. Day. Coffee? The expected location of a mouth wiggled as the doppelganger spoke, but no orifice appeared. The flesh shifted and squirmed. Creepy. Yes, please. Burgundy carpet covered the walls. Burgundy chairs encircled a table. Burgundy fabric clothed the floors in waves of silks and satins. The coffee was rich. But the doppelganger, please call me Bean, 
didn't offer any milk. What were those? Nora jerked her head to indicate out there. Oh, you mean the nursery? Seeds, ready for imprinting. So, you have a certain skill set we might be interested in? Nora let herself smile. Yes. In tailing people, you'll find I'm an expert. Night. Her phone beeped as she slipped from the drainage pipe's exit. Stirred up in the riverside breeze, her personal odor caused a bile reflex. The bums eyed her and shifted away. She checked the calls. Two from Marchfeld. One from her co-worker, Christy. She'd negotiated with Bean until the fine print was satisfactory for all. At her car, she peeled off her car hearts and stuffed the reeking mess into a thick plastic bag. On the way home, she snagged a red box. An unknown to her but popular rom-com. Fried chicken and microwave kettle corn. She stayed in. She didn't itch. She didn't twitch. Really, she felt pretty good. 23. Tuesday. Day. What happened to you? I was really sick. Delirious. Totally forgot to call. Walter hissed as Nora dragged herself into the office. I've had those days. Walter looked her up and down, then nodded. He tapped the side of his head. Nora slipped on a sympathetic expression and nodded with him. She popped her head into Calvin's office and tapped on the door. Sorry I didn't call. I was dog sick. She hoped he didn't require a doctor's note. Could be a new secret policy. Calvin's eyes narrowed. His lips pursed. Nora, sit down. We need to talk about your naming conventions. Night. The comm device pinned to her lapel was about the size of a stamp. Her tiniest whisper could be heard by Bean when used. On hire now, they dealt in an exchange of services. The glossy picture in her hand showed a middle-aged man with a kind of dumpy air about him. What are you getting for him? Everything in the client's safe deposit box. And that is? Bean shrugged, its long body undulating with the motion. The other glossy was of a prim businesswoman, hair in a bun. And what for her? The client's firstborn. 24. Wednesday. Day. This report? Calvin tapped it with a red pen. I need a history of the company's other projects. Why aren't you including that? Nora chuckled, (laughs) then cleared her throat at Calvin's scowl. Calvin, can I please have a written description and list of items that are expected in these reports? It seems to change. Often. A shadow furrowed Calvin's brow. I'm not sure why you can't keep up with the updates in this office. Perhaps you need to come in after hours. And why do you have this spreadsheet in here in eight-point font? I can't even read it. Don't clutter the report with such things. Night. Bean promised they had a deal. That it would be taken care of. It would be taken care of. Nora sprawled on her bed in the dark, staring up at her popcorn ceiling waiting. Would she be able to feel it? The moment Calvin was taken? When he was copied by a seed? 
Would the world suddenly feel lighter? A little more orderly? A little more sane? A tingling set upon her body that she hadn't felt in ages. Optimism. Desire. She wanted to masturbate, but felt it would be a little weird. Her grin caught the moon's bright reflection. 25. Thursday. Day. Standing outside of Marchfeld Marketing's door, Nora Shoemaker bounced on the balls of her feet, peeking through the glass pane window. Calvin's car was in its usual place. Are you going in or not? Nora jumped. Christy smiled at her. Then her smile warped into something worried. You okay? Yeah, sure. Nora yanked the door open just as Calvin walked by. He was smiling. Good morning, Nora. Christy? Christy faltered. Then Dr. Hedden rushed away. Nora remained stiff. Morning, Calvin. How are you? Feeling awfully good. His smile deepened. Great work on the venue project, by the way. Night. Outside the business executive's McMansion, Nora watched, learning her pattern. Nora had never staked out anyone before. The prospect of this new addition to her night walk thrilled her. She sucked on her big gulp. Her SLR camera primed and ready. Her prey skipped out the front door. Jogging shorts, pink Nikes, and bouncy ponytail all in order. Healthy vixen. Nora started her car as the executive ran around a corner. A connection to humanity, her psychiatrist had said. Making friends. Having significant relationships. Nora snorted. Maintaining a connection to humanity was overrated. Define meaning. Some folks just needed to trample through the rose bushes and walk their own paths. Nora had found hers. Snow, freezing rain, tornadoes, all the kinds of weather we want to avoid if possible. But there's really no greater weather-related danger than the risk of being struck by lightning. Just ask author Mr. Michael Squid. He shares a tale about a man whose brother luckily survived just such an ordeal. But sometimes surviving doesn't mean quite what we think it does. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers and Jeff Clement. So whatever you do, get inside when those thunderclouds appear. Otherwise, you'll be the one they speak about when they say, Lightning changed my brother. My brother Bill was struck by lightning a few weeks ago. It happened right in front of me. My parents' dog Luna is terrified of thunder, and when it cracked above us as my brother and I were bringing groceries in, 
Luna bolted out the door and into our field. Bill ran after her, screaming her name as the rain beat down, and wrangled her from under the shed. She whimpered and came back to the house where I stood calling her, holding the door open. I smelled ozone, sharp and chemical as Luna ran in past my legs. Then the sky turned white. I saw a jagged bright line that lit up the field like it was day. It looked like it was growing out of Bill's back, reaching high into the clouds. In that instant, the rain seemed to stop. It was something out of a dream. I could feel the impact of the lightning and the tingle of the current. And in that instant, I knew Bill had been hit. I ran into the plummeting rain to my brother's crumpled form in the grass. I shivered in horror when I saw that smoke was wafting up from his hair. He'd been struck in the head. Bill's older than me by two years. Taller, too. I grunted and huffed as I dragged him by his armpits over the wet grass to the front door. I wanted to get him in in case it struck again. He was limp and cold in my arms. He looked dead. I called 911. It was a blur of a nightmare, and I followed their instructions as I waited for an ambulance to arrive. The operator walked me through how to make sure he was breathing. He wasn't. And she calmly guided me through how to perform CPR. 30 compressions. Two breaths. 30 compressions. Again and again. It felt like hours, but the flashing red lights eventually appeared in the driveway and paramedics rushed in and took over. I was taken aside and they explained everything as I wiped tears from my blurry eyes. They told me I'd done great and that Bill was alive. My mother met us at the hospital and she hugged me so tight I thought my head would pop off. It was all very emotional waiting for the news. But soon enough, we were told that Bill was in stable condition. He suffered from some severe burns on his scalp and neck. He had signs of a severe brain injury, including memory loss, but was fully mobile and capable of speech. But the first time I saw him, something felt wrong. My mom greeted him with a Highlander joke, saying, There can be only one. After no response, her smile wilted, and she said, Just kidding. The Highlander was Bill's favorite movie. Bill smiled then too, but it was different than usual. His eyes lacked emotion. Only his mouth formed a grin, which gave him a creepy appearance. His smile looked forced too. It was more like he was mimicking my mom than actually smiling. I visited him after school the next few days and tried chatting about things, asking about Sherry, the girl he liked, and he just gave me a vacant stare. When I explained his obsessive crush, he nodded and gave me that same strange smile. There was a delay before he replied. Just kidding. But it was pretty clear he wasn't. I found it increasingly difficult to make conversation with him during my visits. It felt as if he was lying in order to seem more knowledgeable than he was. The doctors told us privately that amnesia was a common result of a traumatic brain injury of this sort, but Bill didn't seem to remember anything. He was instructed to keep a journal to record things to try to stimulate his memory. My brother came back home after a few days of testing, and he did appear to be recalling the details that my mother had reminded him of. But after a few days, I knew. I just knew he was learning everything from scratch, as crazy as that sounds. I could see in his dark eyes that he was learning to mimic mannerisms. He'd watch people astutely to learn how to hold a pencil or open a door. He was doing the best he could to act like Bill but I knew. 
Two weeks after returning home, Bill was given the opportunity to return to school. Bill seemed to pick everything up and fit right in, all the time wearing that smile that was so close to authentic, but ever so slightly off. In the evenings, I'd notice the light under his door glowing at odd hours. I'd hear him coughing some awful, retching sounds that turned my stomach. And then I found his journal. Bill often scribbled in his notepad, an action meant to strengthen his neural pathways. So I didn't even question it until I passed his room a few days ago. Bill's door was slightly ajar, and I saw that notepad atop his desk when he was in the shower. His door was almost always closed, so this was a rare opportunity. Curiosity got the better of me, and I stepped in and picked up the journal. I flipped it open, and my neck hair stood on end at what I saw within. There were hundreds of strange, branched scribblings that flowed from one fractal pattern to the next, filling page after page of the book. I thought it was some intricate design at first, but soon noticed similar forking lines that appeared multiple times in various locations. They were different characters. It looked like a bizarre script, the likes of which I'd never seen. I flipped through more pages of the strange writing, and then found the grisly illustrations. Drawn on some pages were internal organs, a liver, a kidney, part of a lung, and more I couldn't identify. They were not medical illustrations, however. It looked like they were drawn from life. Each was labeled in that bizarre, fractal script I'd never seen before. Then I heard footsteps rapidly approaching. Bill was out of the shower and coming back in. I raced into the closet with a pounding heart and mostly closed the door behind me, leaving it cracked to not make a sound. I smelled the stink of rotting meat immediately. Something decomposing was in there with me. I watched Bill through the crack as he entered the room and my blood ran cold. He pulled off his shirt to reveal the large pink fractal scar running down his neck and back caused by the lightning strike. It was bigger than when I'd seen it at the hospital. Much bigger. I then watched in horror as the scar pattern moved, wiggling and branching, shifting as if there was a living organism beneath the skin. Bill began to scribble that cryptic scrawling in his book. His face was lifeless and slack, as if he relinquished control over the musculature when no one was present to maintain the facade for. The raised, vein-like branches just under his skin moved about instead. Eventually, he put down the notepad and finished getting dressed. My heart pounded as he then walked towards me and stood directly in front of the closet I hid within, inches from the door. I felt a wave of ice spill down my back as he looked in the cracked door directly at me. I saw a subtle smile lift the corners of his mouth. I heard his heavy breathing, labored and wet. I was positive he could see me in the shadows of the closet, and I was terrified. My mother's voice broke the silence, calling us to dinner, and he walked back out the door of his room, leaving me in the stinking darkness of his closet. I haven't told anyone about it because no one would believe me. Bill is acting perfectly normal to everyone, but the way he looks at me when nobody is watching fills me with absolute dread. He looks at me like he knows I'm aware Bill is not in there anymore. That something killed him and took over when that bolt of lightning struck his head. They're threatening, looks. Like he's deciding what to do about it. I got a clear view of what was rotting in the corner of his closet after Bill left the room that day. They were decaying innards. 
the ones that he drew, I hear his muffled retching each night, and I think they were his. I think it removed them from Bill's body to make room to grow. In our final tale, we meet Tanya, who shares with us events from her childhood. And for all young children, being able to stay up past their bedtime is a wonderful treat. But in this tale, shared with us by author Lindsay Moore, we find out there are good reasons Tanya's mom had her stay up, to learn a valuable lesson about a most disturbing visitor. Performing this tale are Danielle McRae, Wafia White, Mick Wingert, and Aaron Lillis. So when the knocking starts, you'll know what to do. You must never let in the hungry man. The first time I ever saw the hungry man was just after my tenth birthday. Dusk had fallen and I was about to go upstairs to get ready for bed when Mama put her hand on my arm and told me to sit with her a while. Tanya. I was excited at the prospect of staying up past my bedtime. I remember sitting at the kitchen table, swinging my bare feet while Mama made tea for us. I was excited for the tea as well. To me, it was a grown-up drink, but it was far fancier than Uncle Jim's beer. Mama said that the Queen of England drank tea, and the idea of drinking the exact same thing as royalty made me downright giddy. Mama set cups and saucers down in front of us, and I drank the tea even though I thought that it was better. Later on, I'd learned to add milk and honey to sweeten it. But at the time, I just sipped the sour stuff and pretended that I loved it. I was about to ask Mama just how late she'd let me stay up when there was a knock on the front door. Come on. Mama got up, motioning for me to come with her. Mama, who is it? It's the hunger man. Come on. I need to show you what to do. The man standing on our porch was tall. Just about the tallest man I'd ever seen. His shoulders were so big and broad, I wondered if he'd be able to fit through the doorway. Strangest of all, he was covered in flour. It was caked over his head, neck, and shoulders, as if someone had upended a gigantic bag of it all over him. He stared at Mama, his eyes wide and glazed. I was grateful for the screen door between us and the hungry man. 
but it looked like he could rip it off its hinges if he chose to. I stood beside Mama, trying my hardest to be brave. After all, I was ten years old. I was old enough to stay up past my bedtime and drink tea. Surely I was old enough to meet the hungry man and not be afraid of him. I wish that Mama would just slam the door in his flowery face, though no matter how impolite such a thing would be, I didn't want him on my doorstep, and I certainly didn't want him in the house. I glanced back over my shoulder. The stairs were right behind me. I could easily turn and run up to my room and hide under my bed. I immediately felt awful for thinking about leaving Mama alone with the hungry man. I glared at the hungry man, refusing to show him just how scared I really was. Can I borrow a cup of sugar? I'm trying to bake a cake, and I'm afraid I'm plumb out. I looked up at Mama. She stood stock still, her shoulders squared, looking ten feet tall and like she was made out of steel. All my life, Mama had been a small, plump woman with quick, nimble fingers and a soft voice. She hadn't undone the braids piled up on her head, and they reminded me of a crown. All of a sudden, Mama was a noble queen telling a dirty bandit to get off her land. Seeing her looking so brave made my heart swell up. Mama narrowed her eyes at him and put her hands on her hips. Why, you were baking a cake last night, weren't you? And you were plumb out of flour. I had never heard her talk to anyone like that before. Her voice was firm, never wavering, and she sounded a little bit rude, as if she was angry at the hungry man for interrupting our evening, and she was about to give him a piece of her mind. The only time I'd ever seen her give someone a piece of her mind was when Mrs. Wilkins' grandson Terrence came to visit and trampled her rose bushes. Mrs. Wilkins had tried to say that he didn't mean any harm. Mama had said that the next time she saw Terrence... She'd call the police. Mr. Wilkins had gotten all hot and bothered, and even though she'd never said that she was sorry, she'd been unable to look Mama in the eye on account of how bad she felt about the whole thing. It was no secret how much Mama loved her roses. Every morning, she'd sing a little song to them while we pruned them. I think if there had ever been a rose contest she would have won every prize. Seeing her speak to the hungry man the way she'd spoken to Mrs. Wilkins made me feel better, braver even. I squared my shoulders and gave the hungry man my sternest look. He continued to stare at Mama, never even noticing me beside her. I bake a lot of cakes. Mm-hmm. Mama reached up and flipped the latch to the screen door, locking it from the inside. It made a loud, reassuring click as it slid into place. 
Well, I guess you'll have to go without sugar. I haven't any to spare. The hungry man nodded, bobbing his head low and slumping his shoulders. Thank you anyway, ma'am. He turned and ambled down off the porch. I almost felt sorry for him because of how sad he looked and because I knew that the sugar jar in our pantry was full to the brim. I kept my mouth shut, though, watching quietly as he loped off into the darkness. Once he was out of sight, Mama closed the front door and locked it. That was the hungry man. He comes around just about every night asking for something to bake a cake with. You never give it to him. You never, ever let him in the house. You hear me? But Mama, who is he? Why does he come by looking for food? Mama only shrugged. She took me by the hand and led me back to the kitchen. He's the hungry man. And you must never give him food or let him in the house. You hear me? Yes, Mama. Mama stared at me, her brown eyes boring into mine, searching for something besides a simple yes. This is important, Tanya. You can never feed the hungry man. And you can never, ever ever let him in the house. I need to know that you understand. I do, Mama. I'll never feed the hungry man, and I'll never let him in the house. Good girl. Now off to bed with you. I went up to bed. But it was a long time before I fell asleep. Every time I closed my eyes, I saw the hungry man standing on our porch. His eyes glassy, like someone looking at a TV set without actually watching the program. Every night after, Mama let me sit up with her in the kitchen. We would drink tea until the hungry man arrived. And then we'd both go to the door, and Mama would tell him to leave. He asked for different things every night, usually flour, sugar, or eggs, the kind of things you'd use to bake a cake. I asked Mama about him when we sat in the kitchen together, and I asked her every question I could think of. Who was he? Where was he from? Why couldn't we give him any food? Mama never had any answers, though. Not real ones. I don't rightly know who he is or why he keeps coming around. But if we gave him some flour, wouldn't he go away? Lord, no. The hungry man's like a wild animal. Feed him once, and he'll keep coming back for more. Is that why he keeps coming around? Because someone fed him by mistake? Could be. I never fed him. Why don't we call the police? like we almost did when Terrence was stomping on the roses. Ain't no law against asking someone for a cup of flour so you can bake a cake. You know, 
When your daddy was still with us, he'd answer the door with a shotgun if we didn't know who was calling. Why don't we use the shotgun? We could tell the hungry man to leave us alone forever or else we'll shoot him. Mama arched an eyebrow and looked at me over the rim of her teacup. Do you really think the hungry man is afraid of a shotgun? I looked down at my own teacup before spooning another helping of honey into it. Mama was right. He wouldn't be afraid of a shotgun, and we both knew it. I could picture Mama standing behind the screen door, pointing the shotgun right at the hungry man's heart. He wouldn't even blink. He'd just ask her for more sugar or flour or eggs or milk or whatever his cake recipe was missing. I think that somewhere in the back of my mind, I knew that the hungry man wasn't quite human. He looked and sounded the same, night after night. His clothes and his hair never changed. Even the flowery powder he was always covered in stayed exactly the same. I'd never seen him around in the daylight, either. He only came after sunset. Every night, Mama and I drank our tea and waited for the hungry man. Weeks melted into months, and I got used to him. I wasn't afraid of him anymore. If anything... He was starting to get annoying. What if we put a sign on the door telling him to go away? Or what if we set a trap in the yard for him? Mama just nodded at the empty porch. The hungry man had just left, wandering back into the darkness. She leaned forward, pointing at the porch without opening the screen door. A trap won't do much good. What do you see out there on the porch? I squinted in the darkness, studying the weather-beaten wood. Nothing. Mm-hmm. No footprints. You think a man covered in flour would leave some of it behind, wouldn't you? I looked out at the porch again. There was the usual layer of brownish-gray dust from the road and a few errant blades of grass that were probably tracked up by my sneakers. But no flower. Our porch should have been coated in the stuff from the hungry man. No, a trap won't stop a creature like the hungry man. The best we can do is tell him to leave. I'm just glad he listens. Even though I wasn't exactly afraid of the hungry man... I was still too shy to really be confident around him. I was glad Mama was there beside me, that she was the one who spoke to the hungry man and told him to leave. I liked the way she would puff up like a bird ruffling its feathers to look bigger and tougher than it really was. Every day, Mama was her usual self, tending to her garden baking, sewing, and occasionally complaining about her back or her knees. She always said, when you get to be my age, your body starts to get old a lot quicker. But whenever I asked her how old she was, she just laughed. At night, though, when the hungry man came around, 
Mama turned into someone big and brave. Sometimes I would practice puffing up in the mirror, squaring my shoulders and putting my hands on my hips like Mama did. I always hoped to see a miniature version of her, but instead, I just saw my small, awkward self. What does everyone else tell the hungry man? Surely we weren't the only house he came to. There were four other houses on our street. Mrs. Wilkins lived across from us, next to Mr. Kemper. Mama always called him an odd duck, but I think he was just lonely on account of his wife died. Mr. and Mrs. Clark lived next door. Mr. Clark's mother lived with them, although I almost never saw her. Sometimes she would come outside and wander around like she was looking for something that she'd lost. I tried to help her once, but she'd gotten upset and began to cry. Mr. Clark had come running out of the house and brought her home. The night after, when I was supposed to be asleep, I heard muffled shouting coming from Mr. and Mrs. Clark's house. The next day, Mama had driven Mrs. Clark and her suitcase to the bus station. Mama had told me that Mr. Clark's mother sometimes didn't know where she was, and that made her angry and scared. Mama had said that having Mr. Clark's mother around made things too hard for Mrs. Clark and that she needed to rest a little. There were other houses on our street, but they were all empty. They poked up out of the ground like decaying teeth. Their lawns were overgrown and weedy, and I always thought that it would be fun to play in them and pretend that I was in the jungle or on a safari. Mama wouldn't let me on account of the long grass being full of ticks. Instead, I just watched as the unkempt lawn slowly ate up the crumbling houses. Mama once told me that all the houses had once been full, but that once the factory where Daddy used to work closed down, people started moving out. Mama shook her head. He doesn't go to their houses. I was glad that the hungry man never bothered Mr. Clark and his old mother, but it also felt unfair. How come the hungry man only ever came to our house? How come he never asked Mrs. Wilkins or Mr. Kemper or Mr. Clark for whatever he wanted to bake with? I don't know why. He only ever comes here. When I asked Miss Wilkins about it, she looked at me like I was crazy. Said I must have imagined it. I thought about when Terrence had stomped all over Mama's roses and how she'd marched straight over to Mrs. Wilkins about it. I tried to imagine her doing it every time someone was unkind, but I couldn't. It made me sad and angry that Mama would protect her rose bushes like that, but she wouldn't protect herself. One night, Mama looked at me with something like sadness in her eyes. Tanya, someday I'll be gone. And you'll have to tell the hungry man to leave. The thought made me choke on my tea. Mama rubbed my back while I coughed and sputtered. The gesture was a kind one, but I wasn't comforted. I knew deep down that Mama wouldn't live forever, that one day she'd grow old and die. 
I knew that she was teaching me how to get rid of the hungry man because someday I'd be alone here and I'd have to do it myself. But at 10, that was a harsh truth that I didn't want to acknowledge. That night, for the first time in months, I was afraid of the hungry man. When he came to the door asking for eggs, I stood behind Mama, grateful that she was there to protect me. After he was gone, I lay in bed, staring at the window and scanning the darkness for him. As frightened as I was, I desperately wanted to see him out there. Seeing him would mean knowing where he was, as if I knew where he was. I could keep myself and my mother safe. The phone rang sometime just before dawn. At that point, I stopped searching for the hungry man, but I was half awake. Caught in a dreamy sort of limbo beneath my covers, I padded to Mama's room. She was sitting up in bed with the phone pressed to her ear. She glanced up and shooed me out of the room. I went back to bed and fell into a thick, dreamless sleep. I think something about seeing Mama still awake made me forget about the hungry man. At least for a little while. Tanya. Mama woke me up a few hours later. I sat up, rubbing the sleep from my eyes and squinting at the bright sunshine that was streaming through the window. It was nearly ten o'clock. Mama never let me sleep that late. We always got up with the sun. Tanya, your grin is down sick. I have to go away for a few days to look after her. She wiped her eyes, which were red-rimmed and bloodshot. Before this, I'd only ever seen Mama cry once when Daddy passed. It had scared me then, and it scared me now. You'll stay here. Miss Wilkins is going to come and stay with you. Why can't I come with you, Mama? Your gran is real sick, dear. I don't want you catching what she has. The idea of Granny being sick was upsetting, but the thought that Mama might catch whatever she had made my eyes well up with tears. <laughs> I threw myself into Mama's arms, holding her as tight as I could. If I just held on tight enough, she wouldn't be able to leave me behind. Mama stroked my hair while I cried. I know, baby. I know it's hard, but I need you to stay here for me. I need you to stay here and keep the hungry man away. Hearing the hungry man's name only made me cry harder. I didn't want Mama to leave me alone, not when the hungry man was still out there. Would I be able to listen to him? Would I be able to keep him away? Would he listen to me when I told him to leave? He always listened to Mama, but she was a grown-up. I was only ten, and I suddenly felt smaller and younger. You're always taught to mind your elders, but no one ever listens to children. Mama rubbed my back. You'll do just fine. You remember what I taught you. He'll go away if you tell him to. 
An hour later, she had packed, and Mrs. Wilkins stood in the living room, holding an overnight bag and a loaf of fresh bread. Mrs. Wilkins was tall and skinny. She reminded me of a bird with long, spindly legs and a thin, pointy beak that I had seen in a book once. Her hair was piled up on her head in a bun. I always thought she could have had a pair of glasses perched at the end of her nose. She wore a small gold cross on a chain around her neck. Mama always said that her first love was Jesus and her second was cleanliness. I never knew Mr. Wilkins on account of he died long before I was born, but I always wondered how he felt about coming in third place in his wife's heart. Mrs. Wilkins pushed the bread into my mama's hands. For your mother, I baked it yesterday morning. And some of my famous raspberry jam. Thank you. That's very kind. She put the bread and jam into a paper bag. Mrs. Wilkins gave us a jar of her raspberry jam every year for Christmas. It was too tart for me but Mama liked having it on her toast. I wondered if all the raspberry seeds would get stuck in Granny's false teeth. Mrs. Wilkins nodded while Mama told her about things like my bedtime and how much TV I was allowed to watch. I liked playing with the rabbit ears more than I liked watching TV. It was more fun to try and unscramble the fuzzy channels than it was to actually watch. Mama called it one of her pet peeps, along with when I used to play with the circular dial on the telephone, poking my fingers through the little holes and watching as it spun. Do give your mother my best. And keep the hungry man out. Mrs. Wilkins raised an eyebrow. The hungry man? Yeah, him. He comes around every night about an hour after sunset and asks for food. Never give him anything and never let him in. Tanya knows what to do. Mrs. Wilkins frowned. All right, then. She glanced over at me as if to silently ask whether or not the hungry man was real. You never let him in, and you never give him any food either. Mrs. Wilkins smiled, but it didn't quite touch her eyes. Instead, she just nodded again and turned back on Mama. I'll keep the hungry man out. She said it the same way you talk to a child telling a fib. It was a voice that said, I don't really believe you, but I'll humor you because I think you're stupid. Mama didn't seem to notice. Thank you. Keys in hand, Mama looked over at me. I'll call you when I get there, and I'll call you again tomorrow morning. Mind your manners, and keep the hungry man out. I will, Mama. I decided then that Mrs. Wilkins probably wouldn't do a thing about the hungry man. It would be my job to keep him out of the house and away from our food. I squared my shoulders and fought the urge to beg Mama to stay again. It wouldn't be right to cry in front of Mrs. Wilkins like that. As soon as Mama left, 
Mrs. Wilkins sat down on the couch. She wiped it with her hands first, as if clearing away a layer of dirt. This made me even madder at her, because Mama always made sure our house was spotless. Why don't you play for a bit before lunch? Mrs. Wilkins pulled a book out of her purse and pointed at the door as she spoke to me. I hesitated, wondering if I should tell her more about the hungry man. I could tell her after dinner. That way, she'd have it all fresh in her mind when he came to the door. I went to the shed and got my gardening gloves and spade. This would be the first time I tended the roses without Mama. It wasn't hard. After all, I was old enough to know what weeds looked like and how to dig them up without hurting the roses. I missed Mama, though. We would always sing to the roses. She taught me about all the bugs in the garden and what they did. How some of them hurt the roses and how others helped them. The rest of the day passed uneventfully. I weeded the garden and watered the roses. I sang Mama's songs to them, even though my heart wasn't really in it. When it was time to come in, I wiped the dust and dirt from my shoes. Mrs. Wilkins made me take them off anyway. She wrinkled her nose at my old worn sneakers, but I thought it was kind of her to be so concerned about the sweeping Mama would have to do when she got home. That evening, as the sun began to sink low in the sky, I tried to help Mrs. Wilkins make dinner, but she shooed me out of the kitchen. The last thing I need is you getting underfoot and making a mess. I tried telling her that I helped Mama make dinner every night and that I wouldn't make a mess. Why don't you tidy up the living room instead? I went into the living room, but it was exactly as I'd left it earlier. The only difference was Mrs. Wilkins' book on the end table by the armchair. I rearranged Mama's knickknacks until Mrs. Wilkins called me for dinner. I watched as she piled mashed potatoes neatly onto a plate. Mrs. Wilkins, my mama's right about the hungry man. Don't talk with your mouth full. Besides, there's no such thing as a hungry man. No, ma'am, there is. I promise. He comes around every night after sunset. He always says that he's baking a cake and he needs ingredients, but... Mrs. Wilkins glared at me. Tanya, stop it. I took a deep breath. I was trying to be polite, even though Mrs. Wilkins wasn't listening to me. After all, she had made me dinner and had agreed to look after me while Mama was away. I owed it to her to be respectful. I don't think Mama and Mrs. Wilkins were friends, at least not like I was friends with some of the girls at school. Sometimes Mama went to the sewing circle that Mrs. Wilkins had at her house, and she'd give her rose cuttings every now and then. I sat up straight and tall in my chair and set my fork down. Please, listen to me. I'm not lying, I swear. The hungry man always comes by, and Mama says... That's enough! You stop this foolishness right now, or I'll send you straight to bed. I didn't mean... 
Mrs. Wilkins pointed angrily at the stairs as she scolded me. Get upstairs now! She looked so angry. I thought she might throw her plate at me. I'd never been afraid of an adult before, besides the hungry man, of course, but I wasn't sure if he really counted on account he wasn't human. I pushed my chair back and ran up the stairs, taking them two at a time. I ran into my bedroom, shut the door tight, and paced back and forth in front of the window. The sun was edging closer and closer to the tree line. Soon, it would dip beneath the trees, and it would be dark enough for the hungry man to come. I stopped, staring out of the window, begging the sun not to set, desperately wishing that it would stay up until Mama got home. I heard Mrs. Wilkins moving around in the kitchen, heard the clatter of the dishes in the sink as she washed them. The little bit of food I'd eaten nodded in my stomach as the sun began to sink, painting the sky in bright reds and pinks that seemed to mock me with their beauty. How could the sunset be so lovely when it signaled the hungry man's arrival? I was still standing by the window when dusk settled. In the falling darkness, a shambling figure ambled towards our house. I recognized the hungry man's gait and ran downstairs, nearly tripping over my own two feet. I ran past Mrs. Wilkins in the living room to the front door and locked it. Mrs. Wilkins, the hungry man's outside. We have to keep him out. She rolled her eyes at me and got off the couch, tossing her book onto the seat. I am tired of this hungry man nonsense. There's no one out there. Now get back up to bed right now. She was interrupted by a knock on the front door. We both froze. I think Mrs. Wilkins was stunned that there was really someone there. I'd never met an adult who had ever admitted to being wrong before. For a moment, I thought that Mrs. Wilkins would believe me and send the hungry man away. Instead, she shook her head as if clearing her mind and then marched over to the door. I stood in front of it, pressed my back against it and holding my arms out as if my small body could keep anyone from opening it. Tanya, move out of the way right now. Mrs. Wilkins put her hands on her hips and narrowed her eyes. Normally, I would have obeyed her, but the hungry man was outside and I couldn't risk her letting him in. I'd rather be scolded or even spanked than have the hungry man come in. Mrs. Wilkins reached out and grabbed my arm, yanking me sideways. I wasn't surprised by her anger, but by her sudden strength. I stumbled, tripping, and landed hard on my rear end at the foot of the stairs. I watched in horror as Mrs. Wilkins unlocked the door and opened it. The hungry man stood on the other side of the screen door, staring vacantly. Yes, can I help you? I staggered to my feet. You can't come in. You can't come in and you can't have any food either. Go away. Mrs. Wilkins turned to me. 
her eyes wide and her face the color of the ripe tomatoes in Mama's garden. Tanya, that isn't very Christian. Get upstairs now. Can I borrow some eggs? The hungry man stared emptily at Mrs. Wilkins, as if he hadn't heard me at all. I'm trying to bake a cake, and I'm afraid I'm plumb out. No. No eggs. Now go away! Mrs. Wilkins whirled around. Her hand reached out, and I felt her palm hit my cheek hard. I staggered back, nearly falling over again. My vision began to blur as tears filled my eyes, but I remained focused on the hungry man. No matter what, I wouldn't let Mrs. Wilkins give him any food, and I certainly wouldn't let her let him in the house. You can't come in, and you can't have any eggs. Tanya, stop it! Mrs. Wilkins reached up and unlocked the screen door. She smiled apologetically at the hungry man. I'm so sorry. She's upset because her grandmother is ill. Won't you come in while I get you those eggs? I lunged for the door, grabbing at the lock and trying desperately to push it back into place. No! No, he can't come in! He can't! Mrs. Wilkins pointed angrily at the top of the stairs. You're being very unchristian right now. Now get upstairs and stay there. Behind her, the hungry man opened the screen door. It creaked, as if the hinges were upset at being forced to open for him. For the first time since I'd seen him, the hungry man's eyes were sharp and focused, like those of a hawk. I felt my insides twist and I suddenly wanted to be far, far away from the house. Once the screen door creaked open, it stopped being a proper home. The whole house felt unclean and alien, as if it wanted to spit me out. I scrambled up the stairs, too frightened to think straight. I ran up to my bedroom and slammed the door. The door didn't have a lock, so I began pushing my furniture in front of it to barricade myself in. To this day, I'm not sure how my scrawny 10-year-old body managed to push my heavy wooden dresser in front of the door. I crawled under my bed, the only place I could think to hide from the hungry man. I lay on my belly, not noticing the dust bunnies and spiderwebs weeping. I heard the hungry man and Mrs. Wilkins moving around in the kitchen. Pots and pans clanking over muffled conversation and laughter. I wanted to tell myself that maybe the hungry man wasn't so bad. Maybe he just wanted to bake a cake. Maybe he'd bake a cake and then leave and everything would be fine. I knew deep down that none of this was true. By letting the hungry man into the house, Mrs. Wilkins had unleashed something horrible. I lay under the bed, listening to the incessant bustling from the kitchen until the sun began to rise. I heard the sound of pots and pans clattering together, accompanied by the rhythmic squeak of the handle on the egg beaters. 
I heard cupboards opening and closing. I didn't hear any voices. Every time Mama and I baked, we filled the kitchen with laughter and songs. The thought of two people baking without talking to each other felt unreal, like the feeling of flowers made out of paper or cloth. As my room grew lighter, the noises ceased. The silence engulfed the house, making me more frightened than all the noises had the night before. Was the hungry man still here? Had he left? Had I heard the door open and close? Surely he wouldn't still be here. He couldn't just lay in the house, could he? Plus, it was daytime, and he never came out in the daylight. I had been able to ignore my cramped arms and legs, but I couldn't overlook my full bladder any longer. I crawled out from under my bed, aside from the furniture stacked in front of the door. My room looked exactly the same as it always had. I carefully pushed the furniture away from the door, wincing as my muscles protested. I opened the door slowly and peeked out into the hall. The hall was empty and quiet. I tiptoed out, avoiding the squeaky floorboards. I hung back in the shadows, trying desperately to ignore my bladder and think of a way to relieve myself without crossing in front of the stairs to get to the toilet. In the end, I cautiously stepped in front of the stairs because I had no other choice. There was nothing at the bottom. I paused, waiting with bated breath, sure that the hungry man would step out at any minute. The seconds passed in silence, but I didn't feel relief when the stairwell remained empty. Not seeing the hungry man was worse than seeing him. Seeing him would mean at least knowing where he was. I tiptoed to the bathroom and relieved myself, and then slowly descended the stairs, pausing on each step to listen. House remained quiet as a grave and just as unsettling. I locked the screen door, then closed and locked the front door. I looked around. From where I stood, I couldn't see into the kitchen, just the living room. The living room was pristine and untouched, just the way it had been last night before the hungry man arrived. I walked into the kitchen, dreading what I might find. I stood in the doorway and stared. The kitchen looked the same as always, except for the cake sitting on the table. It was enormous, ticking up nearly the entire tabletop. The cake was topped with roses made of red frosting, the kind I'd only ever seen in pictures or fancy cakes for weddings. It was so beautiful. It didn't even look real. My stomach grumbled. I was dimly aware that I was walking toward the cake, although it felt more like I was floating, and I don't remember the floorboards creaking under my feet like usual. The house felt so still and quiet, like I was moving through a photograph. I walked around the table, taking in the enormous cake from all sides. The frosting was perfectly smooth, 
almost slick looking. It didn't have any of the little ridges and swirls I'd always seen in Mama's cakes. I had to stand on my tiptoes to get a good look at the roses. They covered the entire cake top like a huge garden. They were as red and vibrant as Mama's roses. I reached out and touched one as gently as I would one from the garden. The frosting had developed a sort of crust, and my fingers came away clean when I pulled my hand back. I looked down at my hand, surprised not to see frosting smeared across my fingers. I pressed my finger against the red frosting petal and slid it down towards the bottom of the flower. Something sharp pierced my finger, and I yanked my hand back. A red bead of blood had formed on my fingertip. I'd been so entranced by the red roses on the cake, I hadn't noticed the green vines circling each one. I leaned in, squinted at the vines. Each one was studded with several little thorns. In spite of the hunger gnawing at my stomach, I suddenly felt sick, like I was about to throw up. I pressed the tip of my bloodied finger against my pajama top, watching as the crimson stains spread out against the pale yellow fabric. I looked back at the cake, noticing for the first time just how close I was to it. The tip of my nose was less than an inch away from the shiny white frosting. I stumbled backward. A rancid, meaty scent had invaded my nostrils. It reminded me of the dead rabbit that had laid on the side of the road for the better part of last summer. After a week of calling animal control to come and get it, Mama had buried it in the yard. I pressed both hands over my mouth and nose as I gagged. It smelled like someone had taken that dead rabbit and shoved it right up in my face. I could almost feel its stiff, blood-caked fur against my nose and cheeks. I turned and ran out of the kitchen, nearly blinded by the tears that were welling up in my eyes. I ran out to Mama's rose bushes. I was looking for her, even though I knew she wouldn't be there. At least I could hide in her roses until she came home for me. I crawled under the bushes, ignoring the thorns that scraped at my arms and legs. I curled myself up into a ball and hugged my knees, breathing in the sweet, glowing scent of fresh flowers. I lay there for a few minutes, breathing deeply and trying to calm my racing thoughts. I couldn't stay under the rose bushes for very long. It was too small and cramped. The thorns wouldn't protect me from the hungry man. If a shotgun couldn't keep him away, neither could thorns, no matter how sharp they were. I wondered if I could go to Mr. Kemper's or Mr. Clark's houses. Would they believe me about the hungry man? Or would they just shake their heads like Mrs. Wilkins and tell me that I was being childish and silly? I'm not sure how long I lay under the rosebush. I crawled out when my arms and legs began to cramp again. As soon as I emerged, I was struck by the stench of rot and decay. I pressed my hands over my nose and mouth, gagging, trying not to throw up. I plucked one of the roses and held it under my nose as I circled the house. 
I stood on the porch, pacing back and forth as I waited for Mama. The sun was high in the sky when I saw Mama's car turn down the street. She pulled over when she saw me and got out. She swept me up in her arms and kissed my head while I cried. I felt awful for failing her, for letting the hungry man come into the house for whatever fate had befallen Mrs. Wilkins. Mama held me while I cried. I didn't fully register it, but she was crying too as she held me. Baby, I'm just glad you're safe, she said. It's gonna be okay, I promise. She put me in the car and drove the rest of the way to the house. She made me stay in the front seat while she went in. I expected to hear her scream when she saw what was in the kitchen. Instead, she came out a few minutes later, her face ashen yet stoic, as if she was trying her hardest not to cry. She reached through the open window of the car and patted my shoulder. Stay here, baby, she said. Everything's gonna be okay. Just stay here until I come get you. I don't know how long I sat there in the car, watching the front of the house. Every now and again, I'd see Mama moving around through the windows. Once or twice, she came out holding a bulging trash bag. The sun was just starting to slip down towards the horizon when she told me that I could come inside. The lemony smell of disinfectant invaded my nostrils the moment I stepped over the threshold. But I didn't care. I went upstairs and took a hot bath, and then Mama made me a sandwich and let me sit in the living room to eat it. Even though the kitchen had been scrubbed, I couldn't bear to go in. After I ate, Mama sent me up to bed. What about the hungry man? Even though I was tired and scared, I didn't think it would be right to leave Mama by herself. She had included me in the hungry man ritual because she needed me there with her. No matter how scared I was, things wouldn't be so bad as long as Mama and I were together. Mama just shook her head. Go to bed, baby. I'll be fine. The next day, I noticed the giant mound of dirt in the backyard where Mama had buried the hungry man's cake. Mama had buried it as far away from the rose bushes as she could, but that was the last time I ever saw them bloom. Mama and I had our evening tea in the living room. I think we both knew that I'd never go into the kitchen again, at least not if I could help it. I was adding another spoonful of honey to my tea when the knocking started. Mama got up and went to the door. I followed her, frightened and curious. Mrs. Wilkins stood on the other side of the screen door. She wore the same clothes she had on the last time I'd seen her. She was covered in flour and sticky, half-congealed egg. She stared vacantly at Mama. Can I borrow a cup of sugar? I'm trying to bake a cake. 
and I'm afraid I'm plumb out. Thank you for joining us on our journey down the Lost Highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.